Hello, this is Charles, host of the Design Goggles podcast on BNV Radio. Normally, you'd be hearing our funky music and one of our uh, charming little intros, but this show is a little different for a couple reasons. Uh, one of those reasons is that this is our 50th show, which uh, we're very, very excited about, and we're super happy to be sharing that with you in a minute. Uh, the other reason is that currently uh, Seattle is experiencing, as many other cities around the country and the world are experiencing, the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, instead of being in our recording studio back in our office on 15th Avenue in Seattle, uh, I am at my home uh, preparing this podcast uh, to go out to be shared with all of you. And so a couple things are a little different this week, and I wanted to just chat with you briefly about that. Uh, first of all, we considered putting the podcast on hold uh, indefinitely until this whole thing blows over. And at first it seemed extraneous, uh, something we could set aside while we work on more important things. And, you know, as we thought about it a little bit more, you know, now this is one of our only ways, as we are all sequestered in our homes, to stay together and to continue talking about design because design is so important in fact, perhaps never more important than it is now. And uh, we are already talking about some future shows that we're going to do that is about this uh, current time that we're living in now and how design is shaping our lives in a very different way because of all of us working from home and because we are all uh, experiencing and practicing social distancing. Uh, but in the meantime, I wanted to share this show with you our 50th show, which uh, was a special moment for us. You know, we started the show over three years ago and we didn't necessarily know what it was going to turn into. And it's been uh, an amazing experience. And I am very excited to share this with you. There'll be new shows coming. Uh, if you have ideas for those shows, something you'd like to hear us talk about, feel free to reach out and email me at charles at boardandvellum.com. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, again, this is Rachel and I talking about our 50th show and looking back at the last three years of the Design Goggles podcast. Thanks for joining us and uh, thanks for listening. This is Charles. And this is Rachel. From BNV Radio, this is Design Goggles. This is Design Goggles episode 50, the big 5-0. This is usually the part of the episode that I talk about the subject of the show and ask some questions we'll be delving into. This time, it's a little more self-referential than usual because we're going to be talking about this podcast, why we started Design Goggles, where it's been, and where it might go next. If this is your first show, then perfect, you caught us at the exact right time. If you're returning after having listened to us before, then even better. Join us for some navel-gazing, and let's take a look down the road together. I am joined by my co-host, Rachel Scott, a recovering architect and director of marketing here at Borden Vellum. Rachel, thank you for making time to sit and chat with me again. <laughs> As always, Charles, happy to be here. So I was joking before the show, this is either going to be the hardest show we've ever done or the easiest show we've ever done. Let's find out. I don't know which one, but <laughs> doing the 50th show, I was like, oh, should we like bring on like the first guest we had or should we just do a regular old show and just be like, oh, by the way, it's the 50th show. Mm -hmm. But the more I thought about it, I started just thinking about the ideas we had when we first started it, and it was a very specific thing, mm -hmm. and how it evolved over time, and now it is what it is, 
and maybe it'll be something else moving forward. And I thought it'd be fun just to yeah, no, I like it. I like that. that we're gonna talk about it because cool. it's completely changed, and we've learned so much stuff. Yes, I've learned how much I don't know about podcasting. Yes, through producing a podcast, that is the best part of learning. <laughs> yeah, you're like I know nothing. <laughs> I've had several people recently actually come to me, and they're just like, "Oh, I need your help," and how you do the podcast, and all this, and all that, and I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> they're like, "No, but you've been doing one." I'm like. Sort of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Damn. It's been a while. We've done 50. We started, is it over three years ago now? It's really confusing when you try to assign time to it like yeah. that. I mean, I know you're not just making up time, but I'm just, no. the idea of three years seems way longer, Yeah. but it is what it is, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we started, we were going to do this podcast about design, the Pacific Northwest, and it was much more talking about how the city was changing and, you know, design's role in Seattle was controversial at the time. And there was a lot of anxiety. And we were really Seattle specific. Yeah. Old and new Seattle. Yeah. Old timers, natives. Yes. There was a lot of anxiety between and conflict between people who grew up here like you and the people who had come here newly at the time like like me. And we did that for a little while. And I can't even remember. I'm trying to remember specifically the show. This almost feels like a clip show. Ever watched, <laughs> like in the 80s when they had like uh, sitcoms and stuff. And like once in a while they had no they script. Yeah. And they were just like, oh, Steve has amnesia. And he just keeps remembering <laughs> things that happened in previous episodes. a montage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should just like put clips of old shows in there and just be like, hey, remember the time? And then it yeah. fades into an mm-hmm. old show. But what I was yeah, saying is I, I can't, can't remember, remember when we when we let that go. Yeah. Whenever we did, it was a good idea. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want people to like, I mean, I love those early shows, but now that when I look back <laughs> at them, I'm like, does. oh my God, we didn't know anything. And I yeah. when Be- we have new listeners, I'm like, oh no, I hope you don't start at the end. Yeah, beyond us. <laughs> or a certain, at the beginning, like once we figured ourselves out a little bit more. The first few are rough. So if you are new to the show, go backwards. Oh yeah, yeah. Go backwards. <laughs> Just don't go, go backwards. Yeah. Because as you go backwards. Clearly, you'll like something about the show because you keep listening to it. And you'll have a higher tolerance as you go back, which is seems like a direct relationship that you should have. It'll be like when you start a new show on Netflix. Yes. And it's something that, you know, like they obtain the rights from somewhere else, you know, like, I don't know, it was on the BBC or wherever. I've noticed that Netflix does this. They take like some show, I don't even know, like when it was on network mm-hmm. TV or wherever it was, but Netflix will get collections of them, right? And mm-hmm. so they're like a sampling of what would have been seasons yes. on the television. But on Netflix, it's like a one season is on a season. It's like a collection of all these things. And so you can accidentally end up watching because they know it'll work better some later mm-hmm. seasons first. Yeah, they'll in tell the you watch out because it like hooks or watch you. Any order, yeah. Is what they say. Yes. Yeah, so that happened to us the other day. We're like, oh, this is really like like hooking us in and then we realized that we were like three seasons in <laughs> and then we went back to the first like season like, one episode garbage. one and we're like yeah. oh my god <laughs> yep yep that sounds familiar yeah but of course I, this is probably what we're gonna think later like we're saying this now yeah. imagine in another 20 episodes we'll be like oh man yeah back man when that we 50th were recording episode, episode was 50 that was terrible, terrible. But, you know there was there was a moment where i don't think i felt this at that time but that felt like when the show changed for a bunch of reasons, which was when we had Monica Guzman on the first time. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even during the show. She came in and she was awesome. And she's been on a couple of times. Yeah. And just one of the smartest people I've ever met. But when she came in, she was excited to see the office and be in a design office. And she came in and, you know, we always chat before the show with our guests. And she was just talking about how she was excited to see our office. She was always fascinated about design but always been like a little afraid of it and been a little scared of it. 
but really interested and looking for ways to learn more about it. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me, like, nothing should be that hard to gain access to these days. Yeah, but designers make a point of making it hard to get at. Right. To their own detriment some of the time. I couldn't agree more, even though I don't think I made the leap at the time. As the show grew and evolved into something else, I locked onto that and remembered that moment. And I kept thinking, like, all of this should be more accessible. Mm -hmm. Design should be more accessible. It shouldn't be mysterious. And it's a subject that came up again and again and again. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't go so far as to say that is the subject of the show, but it seems to be one of the biggest recurring themes, no matter what our subject is. Yeah, I mean, like, when we were thinking about what we were going to call the show Mm -hmm. and we settled on design goggles, I think a lot of it had to do with this idea, beer goggles, you know, (laughs) like, you have them on and you see the world a little differently through them and everything. But (laughs) I think at the time that we came up with that, that Mm -hmm. we didn't realize that the other side of that coin, there was a whole other side of it. It's not just like how we're seeing the world through these goggles, but that the inverse of that is just as interesting and probably needs to be addressed a whole lot more because it's easy for people that are spending their, you know, all day, every day in the design world can accidentally be completely in this isolated Mm -hmm. box or tunnel vision or, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use and Uh don't realize that it's being lost on a lot of people. And if we could let more people in, there would probably be many more great things that could happen. Yeah. You know, when we first named it, the design goggles was like a cute thing, right? It was like, oh, you know, let's look at the world through the lens of a designer. The funny thing is now it's like there's a double meaning to it. It's like the design world has design goggles on. Instead of looking at things as they actually are. Mm-hmm. So there's that sort of funhouse mirror thing, too. Yeah. That comes yeah, up exactly. a lot. What was one of your favorite guests on the show? Oh, my gosh. Has I don't been. think I can answer that question. I love all our guests. Well, like, we're your least <laughs> favorite. <laughs> I know. <you're> like, <laughs> all right. But who, oh, well, who, who did I, I hate now? interviewing? Let's see. <laughs> no, actually, I don't have a least favorite guest. <laughs> I have, like, least favorite shows of my own. Like, things that, well, like, I was, like, terrible. Yeah. Well, I'm very critical of myself. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, there's plenty of those. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe we've done 50. That's a lot. Yeah. It is a lot. And now we talk about cyber trucks and cyber and. Trucks. and Bjark Ingalls, and <laughs> that's actually one of our more popular episodes, the one where I go apoplectic over Bjark Ingalls for like 40 minutes. Didn't he just win some award? It was controversial. He won something and it was super controversial. It wasn't a Pritzker. It was some bullshit. Um, ah, sorry about that. got to bleep that out. <laughs> we tell our guests every show that they like shouldn't curse. And then inevitably. It's not them. It's I us. curse. Yeah. No, yeah, he won something. I don't know what it was, but it was. He got trashed for it Hmm. by, like, the popular media, not even, like, Dezine. I I forget what it was now. I think, oh, you know what it was? It was from Brazil. He was doing some huge project for Brazil. And so, like, here's a country that, like, literally, like, a huge majority of the country lives in abject poverty. And they're hiring Bjark Ingels to do some, like, high society massive project. I think Mm -hmm. that's what it was. So Mm -hmm. people were just, like, flat out, wow, that's incredibly unethical. Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, hmm. you didn't even try this time, did you? <laughs> when I was trying to think of the subject for the 50th show, which I obviously failed to do, I was like looking and I'm like, all right, what's well, popular? 
<laughs> and they're like, oh, it turns out when we trash Capital A Architects, that's pretty popular. And like the show can quickly <laughs> devolve into just like picking a different Capital A Architect and just uh, trashing them. Yeah, we And I was can't like, do oh, that. that's not good. That's sad. Yeah, that's not good. But the whole architect's not smiling, designers walking around and all black, sneering at each other, posturing and preening. Yeah, and the idea of being hypercritical. Mm-hmm. Oh, and critiquing other, everything. Yeah. And I don't think there was ever a moment where either of us were like sure that we wanted the podcast to become X. But I certainly know the kind of show I didn't want it to become. <laughs> which was what? Which was like any of the other design podcasts I've ever listened to. <laughs> where it's just like, oh, here's Person X. Person X is famous because they designed A, B, and C. Welcome to the show. And they're just like, oh, thank you. I was so influenced by Person 1, 2, 3, and 5. They're just incredible. <laughs> and then I talked to Famous Person 5 and Famous Person 7. And then Famous Person 8 made a joke. They don't even really talk about design. It's just like a mm -hmm. ton of name dropping and back padding. Except and... for poor person number four who got <laughs> left out of that whole narrative. I know. I know. Person number four. Yeah. Oh, we don't talk about them. No. They've been canceled. <laughs> But of all the quote-unquote design podcasts, very few talk about design. Like 99% of Visible does. That is mm -hmm. a legitimate, awesome design podcast. But there are just so many others that perpetuate inaccessibility of design mm -hmm. and reinforce the gatekeeping BS. Well, yeah, that's a good way of putting it, too. It's like they're perpetuating that idea that design is so exclusive. Whereas I think when we started to have some of the most fun with what we were doing was when we were like, well, let's critique that whole concept of yeah. design being this thing on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. And let's find ways that design can be relevant to all sorts of guests that we're having on that are not designers yeah. or don't consider themselves designers, but in fact are doing things that legitimately should be called design, mm -hmm. you know, or they're applying design to different fields or all sorts of things like that. Mm -hmm. And that we're taking it and using it as a method to inform how we look at other things rather than just being like, let's all talk and promote design as a concept and just celebrate design for everything that it is rather than using it as a tool. Exactly. So that certainly informed what we did become, whatever that is. Yeah. Who, what are we? <laughs> well, you know, there are some podcasts out there of various subjects that like talk about the news and current events. And there have certainly been some shows lately. Mm -hmm. The Cybertruck show is a pretty good example of that, where it's like, here's something current that's going on that affects right. the design world. Let's talk about that. Yeah. And so at that time, I was like, oh, maybe that's like the format we should take on. We should just like, you know, talk about what's new on Dazine and what designers are talking about. But that didn't seem quite right either. And I mean, obviously, since we produce the podcast, we get to pick whatever interests us to talk about. And yeah. that influences the list somewhat. But there is still the theme of like having a real conversation with people and an accessible conversation with people about real design concepts and not BS. Maybe we should get people to suggest things. I would love that. It would be a fun challenge because yeah. some of those things aren't easy to make accessible. Yeah. Uh, the la very last episode... Well, at the time of this recording, the very last episode we put up was episode with a guest, Jeff Sandler, who was a former coworker of ours. Mm -hmm. And in that episode, was, that was like the first episode where like we were talking and naming design movements that we've ever done. I don't think any other show prior to that really talked about design movements in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And we managed to keep it accessible. 
But my worry for the future of the show sometimes is how deep in can we get on design that leans towards academic? Yeah, no, I don't mean things like that. I mean, like somebody be like, hey, what do you think about this thing? Like the Cybertruck, you know, like something that's in the news that is not necessarily being talked about through the lens of design in popular media. Yes, let's do that. There have been dream guests I've wanted to have on. Yeah. You want to call them out and be like, hey. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I mean, they're definitely not listening. I, I've sent, I went through a period of time where <laughs> I was like, oh, like, this is a thing. Like, this podcast is going to keep going. I should just, like, shoot for the moon and see who I get. And I just started, like, emailing people at random. Mm-hmm. And I emailed Gabe Newell, who owns Valve. And I emailed the CEO of REI, like a CEO of Microsoft, like a bunch of <laughs> random people. And I, in fact, that was how Linda ended up, Linda Dershang ended up coming mm-hmm. on. But I had sort of a friend of a friend who knew her. Mm-hmm. So, and she was skeptical at first. Sorry, <laughs> she was like, who is this? What's going on? Who is this guy? But she was totally game and totally cool. <laughs> and speaking of which, if you are new to the show, that it was awesome. She was an amazing guest. And we lost our first show with her and she came back and was so nice and recorded another show. Yeah, such um, a trooper. Yeah, she She's was. awesome. Shows we haven't done <laughs> that I would love to do. And would, these could be spoilers. These could actually be shows we end up doing. We talked about doing a show about design, the design of loneliness. Mm-hmm. That's something we've talked about. There was another technology-related one I'm trying to remember. I think it was about like the ethics of UX or something like that that came up at some point. Yeah. Oh, it was a book I was reading. That's right. About the ethics of UX. That was, by the way, nightmare-inducing. It's a new book. I keep meaning to recommend it to you, actually. It's this mind-blowing book by this guy who worked at Twitter for a long time Mm -hmm. and talks about knowing a bunch of people at the very upper echelons of like the most powerful social media and programming companies in the country and how truly evil mm-hmm. the decision making processes are well, and how you can use design for good and yeah, you can use yeah. design for evil mm-hmm. I mean we talk about that sometimes too oh, for sure. it's just like design is a tool. <laughs> next week on evil design yeah. goggles you should put little horns on like there, people on like the to wear design you know like a cape or a yeah. fashion or something yeah you know, I'm a designer <laughs> I, I dress know, this way or we whatever, wouldn't know anything about that. You know? <laughs> nothing but it's just it's a method it's a methodology it's mm-hmm. a toolbox a thing you can use for looking at the world you don't have to be designing you know the yeah. things that we promote a lot like the buildings and or the graphics mm-hmm. or the well that goes back products. to Monica Guzman she was a news person she is well actually she's not anymore oh, uh, right. well sort of she's now just like the VP of the company that owns Evergrey. Cool. So, I mean, she's still in the industry, but yeah. like, I don't think she really qualifies as a reporter anymore. So she was a reporter for the Seattle Times. We should Times. let her tell us. She became the director of the Evergrey, which was, and still is, a local digital news publication. And now she works for the company that owns the Evergrey. And she was such a relevant guest. She was a designer of questions and a designer of storytelling, mm-hmm. but not a visual designer. I really do think that first show with her was like the beginning of the big inflection point. People think design and they think automatically some visual product needs to come out of it. And I don't necessarily think that's the case. And I think maybe it was talking to her that helped me make that leap. I do agree, though, because (laughs) I think that's one of the things where design as this like capital D design gets misinterpreted a lot is that it has to be this visual thing. The most exposed and popular culture that design gets are things like buildings or like fashion design or architectural design or interior design or Mm -hmm. graphic design. 
it all has that visual component to right. it, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that's completely unfair to the real world of design and the real world of people that have studied design and then use design professionally to build companies and solve problems. You know, it doesn't have to even be in capitalist ways, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. nonprofits and government entities solving problems using design thinking. There's a whole process there that I think gets really neglected in the public eye for what design really is and can do. Yes. People just think of design making things pretty, which is just makes my blood boil. It's well, yeah, because all they, like, they because sure that's not a bad thing, but it's so much more than that. Because so many designers just want to be like, Viewed as magicians. Yeah. Like I'm just a genius and I thought this up. Yeah. And I just, I literally woke up. I'm just such a genius. Mm -hmm. I just did a sketch. Yeah. And then somebody built a model and then they did some drawings. And yeah. this is just what I do. And that, I'm just can't, that amazing. it can't be learned. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just you know, uh, handed so down. You're either a special person you're touched by God like, or not. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And there's like, a mythology around it that. Mm -hmm is detrimental to probably society as a greater whole. I definitely think so. My mantra has become, and I didn't even realize this until I was explaining it to actually a new employee of ours. Actually, it really did evolve out of the show. Like a couple of uh, the shows we've done, like put together, the thoughts getting glued together, mm -hmm. that design has never been more important. It's never been needed more by the world. And that someone or many people should be doing academic design and should be experimenting and should be creating the projects that nearly no one can afford. And that work is important because it influences all of the other work that is done. Mm -hmm. Except when people stand in the way of understanding that work, when the gatekeepers step between that work and the rest of the world and say, no, 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 this is for us, not for you. You can't understand it. And if you did, it wouldn't be good design that hurts the world mm -hmm. because then the world doesn't get access to the ideas that the world desperately needs to make a better designed world. Yeah. Period. It takes a society that can support having that kind of privilege to be able to give somebody time to design and think in that way. Mm -hmm. Like if back way in early human times, right? Like some of the earliest artifacts that we find and recover like earliest pieces of art. Mm -hmm. I don't know how long it takes to make a cave painting or something, right? But like there are some old artifacts that we find that you can tell how long they took to do because maybe it's carved out of stone right. and you can go get a piece of that raw stone now and use tools that would have been available back then to mm -hmm. make it like no machine. Right. So we can figure out how long it took to make this figurine or whatever out of whatever granite or soapstone or whatever right? yeah. whatever it was, right? We can assign a quantity of time that it takes to make that by hand. Mm -hmm. And then we know that if you were doing it for only an hour every day or something, it would take you like a year. Mm -hmm. Or what we're seeing here is that there is a society or a community of people that said, this person is going to do this all day, every day, going to make this and figurine and, yeah. and going to make many more of them. And that is what they do. That's a privilege that that society, that community has been able to do as a group. Because if that guy is carving sculptures, he's not hunting and right. gathering or right. cooking or defending the group. Like mm -hmm. that community decided that the value of that creative output was worth it Yeah, to let that person do that while everybody else took care of these other things. And so that's a really cool shift when you think about communities and societies and how we evolved and that we want somebody to spend some time thinking about this design and we want somebody right. to spend some time realizing this design and making it happen. Mm -hmm. Well, in back then, you couldn't afford to have a non-talented person dedicating all their time on something. Like that bar was very high for anybody, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the apprenticeship model 
was like you had to be good just to be taught. Well, Whereas I'm talking that like is, way earlier than that. <laughs> no, I know, but like even then, it was like yeah. nobody was gonna let like okay, sh- not good at sculpture, caveman, do the sculpture. They're gonna be like, no, caveman who's good at sculpture will do sculpture. He's like, but I, yeah, I'm gonna be gonna, something great. You better let me fish try. Like the rest of us, <laughs> and it was just like we to survive. Like that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. And then it evolved into the apprenticeship program, and now it's anybody who wants to do anything can learn. And you know, we crowdsource judgment on who is talented and who is not, which is extremely egalitarian and great. I think personally. But also very tricky because tricky, if you're crowdsourcing but, judgment, you have a lot of people that are casting judgment that don't really understand what they're judging. It's possible. But you're also gaining access to people who might not ever think they're good enough to bother. Mm-hmm. Sort of the like American Idol phenomenon <laughs> where it's like, okay, this is a garbage show. But like, you know, there are like genuine, actual talented people being discovered who like don't really know they're that good. Mm-hmm. Tastemakers do have a role. Yeah. And the crowd doesn't always get it right. But I think their influence does matter to a degree. Sure. With architecture, it's a little bit different because it's just more complex. It's not just beauty. There are so many seen and unseen effects to creating a building. Yeah. Mm. What about um, crit culture? It's a thing. (laughs) Well, I mean, (laughs) you know, it happens. I've used that term in places where I didn't realize that people wouldn't know what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we should explain it. But so, because crit is shorthand for critique. And Mm -hmm. we talk about it a lot here in the office of crit culture and how you cultivate it and, you know, make it be constructive rather than tearing right. things down. And right. I wish I could see more of that in the world at large because it's not something that we are schooled in, really. It would be great if we learned all this stuff as little tiny kids, but at least in schooling now, I, I don't think we do that much unless you're lucky enough to be like in a lot of art classes or something like that. I think some of that is the coast you're on. The coast you're on. Yes, the West Coast. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no. We're just like, we're too nice over here? Yeah, well, it's a competitive culture. I mean, coming from where I come. Hey, we're back to the original concept of the yeah, show. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> you're from here and I'm from there. <laughs> we're different. Derp to derp. Design goggles. Um, no, like in the East Coast, it's a much more competitive culture in all aspects, regardless yeah, of whether it's a creative. versus providing critique are different things. True. I, I mean, think we're not competitive crit, crit on the culture, West Coast. Crit culture is a tastemaker comes in and tells you if it's good or bad. It is not crowdsourcing judgment. Oh, I disagree. I think healthy crit culture would be that the crowd is able to provide legitimate critique of something. Not a tastemaker coming in, not, yeah. not one person, it, but that the community can come together and be like, yeah. here's how we think we should change this thing. Or, That's rare anywhere because it needs to be highly structured. Or else it's all just noise. But does it need to be highly structured because we haven't learned it as children? That's what I'm saying. Is like maybe if we learned how to do it as little kids, we would be able to take it into. I'm actually going to be yeah (laughs) super cynical about this. I think it is because of human nature. A person is smart. A mob is dumb. And that's just human nature. Except that there is the wisdom of the crowd. There are studies that show. In a structured way. Social media is a massive structure for people to provide comments. Some of them are still horrible, but no, it's but a like structure. Things like where there's the wisdom of the crowd. Like if you, I don't know, have a jar full of jelly beans and you ask mm-hmm. people to guess how many jelly beans are in this jar. Mm-hmm. And you ask 100 people, they'll be all over the map. But if you actually average out what they said, you'll get so crazily close to the right number. Mm-hmm. There is a wisdom in the crowd. Sure. But there not... would be a structured way to gain that information. 
if you went up to a crowd of 5,000 people Mm -hmm. and went up to a microphone on a stage and you said, everyone with no structure, tell me how many jelly beans are in this jar. They'd all shout at you and you'd get nothing. But if you could record what they said. That's structure number one. Okay. Or if they could write it down. Sure. Structure number two. Yeah. Or if they could check a website. Structure number three, if they could send an email for If you can structure the way in which you give and receive information. I mean, that's all just that we just need to be able to obtain what they're saying. In an organized fashion, not all at once. Okay. But it's still, I don't think that undermines the idea that there can be constructive crit from a crowd that is. I think there can be with structure, but that isn't crit culture, I don't think. Well, I'm saying that I don't think people are trained up on how to have a healthy crit culture. But I think we could, as a society, have that if we taught little kids how to think about it and how to provide feedback to their peers and or to anything, even if it's not to their peers, but to look at, I don't know, something they see in the world and think about it and say, take it further than I like it or I don't like it and be like, well, why? Or what would you do differently? such a West Coast thing. On the East Coast, no one ever refrains from sharing their opinion with you about anything and everything. Crit culture, as I learned it, at least growing up, is about being open to feedback that is mostly negative because it's easier, Mm -hmm. a human nature thing, easier to criticize than to offer solutions. Mm -hmm. And two, be able to filter it and turn it into something useful. The roadblock is never access to criticism. The roadblock is being willing to take it and then able to do something with it. Okay. And identify the voices that who matter more. Sure. But I guess part of it, too, is that the people that are criticizing things have to be able to criticize things in a way that they have to be able to define their criticism. I think a lot of stuff I hear is like, oh, I don't like it. To me, that's a total West Coast thing. On the East Coast, it's like people can say whatever the F they want. It's on, onus is on you. But are they able to say why? Because It doesn't if, matter. No, but it does matter if you are trying to do anything other than complain. You mm-hmm. have to be able to explain why you don't like a thing. This is why, yes, I agree. So that's, why, that's, that, that's how what I'm saying. Is tastemakers that like, become tastemakers. No, but a, a yeah. crowd of people can be like, I hate this thing. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. But that is not reflecting positively on them or their ability to define their feelings of why they hate it. Mm-hmm. And so it's not helpful. Mm-hmm. So they need to figure out how to be a critic that can express their distaste with something. But you'd have to be an expert on everything no, you, you wouldn't. critique. You could be something really banal. It could just be like, I hate this hot dog. Well, like, that's not helpful. Right. But like, why? Why do you hate it? Can you like put your finger on some part of it? Is it that? But like, that's a lot. You're asking a lot of a person who probably doesn't care. Well, like, but I, if they there don't was a care, song. then they shouldn't complain. Like, it's not it's helpful into a great for them. show after all. <laughs> if you hate a thing, I want to know why. People may not know. Well, like, then they need to figure it out. You know, have you seen the show on Disney Plus? No, that we has, don't. So Jeff that. Goldblum has a National Geographic show on Disney Plus. I can tell you're already sold. It's actually kind of amazing. So he goes to Portland in one show. He did a whole show on just the sneaker craze. Mm -hmm. So he goes to Portland to like Nike headquarters or whatever. And I might have gotten that wrong. I can't remember if it was Nike or Adidas or what. But In Portland, in Beaverton, it's Nike. So he goes, but I think Adidas also has a U.S. headquarters there or something. So he wants to understand how they design sneakers. Mm -hmm. And they take him into this lab and they say, so, you know, the users that matter most to us are athletes. Athletes don't necessarily have the language to tell us what they're feeling or why they do or don't like a sneaker. But then we should and teach they, the language. That's what I'm saying. No, they don't. <laughs> no, they spend nearly every ounce of their day physically training to physically perform 
this is not something that's important to them. But it should be. If they're trying to like optimize their performance of their body, they no. should be able to be like, my feet hurt. How and here's why. <laughs> no, how their sneakers look has no bearing on that. Has okay. a lot of bearing okay. on so selling sneakers. how they sneakers. feel though. I'm talking specifically only about how they look right okay. now. And so they created technology that allows them to measure the unconscious facial expressions and reactions okay, of yeah, athletes. That's cool. But the onus is on the shoe company to interpret the reactions, not on the crowd. The crowd's onus is to be good at the thing they do, not the free advice. But so this is playing right into what I'm saying is that the crowd should learn to be better at this. Why? Because everything in the world would be better if people could assign their emotions to things. I disagree. I feel like (laughs) a distance runner should spend their time being the best distance runner they can. Not the best, not the best shoe critic. No, but no, not for any shoe. Not like he's going to decide to critique shoes generally. Literally only the shoes he's wearing. A person should be able to be like, these shoes that are literally on my feet right now, I like them or I don't like them, and here's why. This is the argument of the elite design community. You can't understand this art because you haven't educated yourself enough, which I abjectly disagree with. But it's just an input of things. Like, the designer is not the user in a lot of these cases. And so the user has to be able to provide feedback for the product. And the onus to get good feedback is on the creator, not the user, in my opinion. Why, though? How, because how are the you user to... is a lawyer or a school teacher or a distance runner, and they have kids, and they have a car that's in the shop, and they have an entire life that needs their attention. Oh, I'm they saying don't... make it easy to provide the feedback, but you still have to be able to, like, you're the only person that is touching the product. You have to be able to explain your experience. Yes, exactly. The onus is on the creator. No, the user. <laughs> no, I disagree. <laughs> I think the onus is on the creator to take and translate the feedback they are getting to understand their audience and the way their audience interacts with their creation better than the audience can. I agree that the onus is on the creator to take the feedback that they get and deal with it as they can. Mm -hmm. But everything would be better if users could somehow use their five senses to experience the world around them. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems insane. Like, is the shirt you're wearing soft? No. Cool. Do you like it? Yeah, I'm talking about aesthetics. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it's the old adage, I don't know art, but I know what I like. And I do slash don't like this. Like, that is as far as many people will be able to... But but see, I don't think that's giving them enough credit. I think people can get further than that because nobody has given them the opportunity to get further. Well, you have to ask. And you have to coax it out of them and give them the words. We do this with clients all the time where we help people to break down what they don't even know that they know about design. but. The onus is on us to do that. Okay. The onus is on us to help people understand. What they do and don't like and why. Okay. But we can help teach people those things. Again, what I'm saying, though, is that Mm -hmm. if we started this as kids to be, this is just a thing that you can learn as a human to look at in your surroundings, the things that you can see and hear and touch and feel and assign a little more thought to it rather than just like, I don't like it or I do like it. And that's a thing that you can learn that doesn't have to be shepherded by some designer to coax it out of you. We have to coax it out of adults because they didn't learn it when they were little. But I really do think that this is a thing that people can be more conscious of if they feel like it. 
they want to think about these things and have more complex thought about why they like or don't like a thing. It's totally within the human capacity. Yeah. And there's different desires and capabilities. There are people who just aren't visual people. There like are people when you're, words people. when you're like a two-year-old and mm-hmm. your favorite word is why, mm-hmm. that's the moment when that little kid is like, I'm not thinking of a good example. I haven't been around a two-year-old in a while. But it just <laughs> yeah. seems like always that's the question. It's like, why? Like everything you say and they're like, why? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people are, they're dealing with a toddler and they're so exhausted. <laughs> and they're just like, shut up. But, <laughs> but that if, if there could be some, you know, in a moment where you're not so tired that you can't stand it, you could just <laughs> help cultivate this idea of, well, well what? let's find out why. Let's think about why. Let's figure it out. Let's, why do you like it? In a perfect world. I don't world, know, why do you like yeah, it? In a let's perfect decide. world, everybody <laughs> would have a musical appreciation course and everybody would have an architecture appreciation course and everybody would have an art appreciation course and everybody no, would I'm have I'm talking a- like way more basic not all those things like do you like what this sounds like okay yes all right let's think about why do you like what this feels like is it soft do you like it you know okay. to be perfectly is honest because <laughs> I don't think that critically about music I mean, maybe I should. We both have a colleague who certainly does. I don't. Like, when I hear something that I hate, I just go, my, oh, my God, turn it off. I hate this. And I do not put any onus on myself to, like, break it down. Well, and- but that's okay because you're not trying to improve on that. You're like, my life is such that this annoys me and I hate it. I'm just not going to have it in my life right now. But if you were doing a thing, like, what if what that was was, like, somebody, like, a friend of yours was playing music for you, and you're like, oh, no, I hate this. Oh, my God, did I ever tell you this story? (laughs) This actually happened to me. Somebody I knew who was an architect designer, he posted a bunch of pictures of this big competition that had been done for, like, a bridge in a park, and I tore it the apart. (laughs) Or no, sorry, it was several competitions. (laughs) It was several entries to a competition. It was like four Uh, or five. And I like tore almost all of them apart. That's right. And then he was just like, oh, that one was mine. (laughs) Like, and I didn't even know that he had done it. And I was so embarrassed. And I like had to backtrack on it. I mean, I did give reasons. And he actually was super appreciative. I mean, if you're providing constructive feedback, then he can't be. No, weirdly enough, he was not insulted. I felt like I needed to shove my foot in my mouth. But he was like, actually, at least I know you were being honest. He's like, it's funny when you do a competition, your friends all want to be supportive, but you don't really know at all. And he was just like, that's actually somewhat useful. Well, and this is a good point, too, that Mm -hmm. this is bringing up that because I'm all like, we should critique everything and provide feedback everywhere. But no, you have to make choices. Appropriate context. Yeah, context. Well, and also just like, what do you have time to devote some care to? Because there's too much to care about. Mm-hmm. A lot going on. Yep. You cannot devote That's a degree of caring earlier. to everything. Right. It just annoys me when people are like, I hate a thing, and then they won't elaborate on it. Because that just feels like you hate it, but you don't care enough to articulate it. So therefore, I mean, your exactly opinion is saying. not yes. valid. <laughs> like, I can't, I can't take it for anything. It basically undermines their opinion. Mm-hmm. If you can't defend why you have an opinion about a thing, then your opinion is invalid. Hmm. I don't necessarily agree with that. Or maybe, wholesale. okay, maybe you can have a gut opinion about things. But, you can but have I, a, if you can't sustain an argument about it, then how would that stand up? I'd say it's more respectful to share an opinion that you can put thought in and put to words. But there is definitely something about the human condition, even when you know, like sometimes I will look at an architectural project and I will have an instinctual feeling that I hate it. And initially, sometimes not be able to put that into words yet. And it will take time and I can. But there is something about the human condition, regardless of your level of expertise in a thing, 
where you have the reaction first oh, and yes, then it takes sure. real concentration and to get is, to the... <laughs> and, yeah. and there's a huge amount of value mm-hmm. in that initial reaction. I am yeah, all yeah. about that. I totally agree. Gut reactions to things can... But most people are lazy. <laughs> yeah, but if, super, you could, but if you could be unlazy like, enough yeah. to think about it more mm-hmm. and, and to evaluate why you had that initial reaction, because a lot of times those initial reactions have a ton of value Mm -hmm. and we don't understand why we had them and it takes time to think about and percolate and evaluate and sometimes you can go through your process and realize that maybe you were wrong or whatever and it was some preconceived thing that triggered your response Mm -hmm. but a lot of times you prove your gut right but it's just that you can live your life with gut reactions to a degree but it will eventually undermine you because you need to be able to defend your opinions to mm-hmm. get through the greater challenges mm-hmm. that we all come across. What's interesting is chatting about this with you reminds me of the real reason that came before the reason that came before the reason we did the show is because you and I and people here used to talk like this all the time <laughs> and not share it with anybody. <laughs> and There were so many interesting ideas and important things to debate, and they weren't getting shared, and that seemed sad. Mm -hmm. And the idea of doing this and recording it and sharing it with people seemed great. Yeah. The rest of it was (laughs) convincing (laughs) others to go along. (laughs) Like, oh, we should dress this up so people (laughs) people will. uh... Yeah. Speaking of criticism, like, we got criticism about the show. Still do. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's the nature of the game. Uh (laughs) For sure. Yeah. Most criticism on a uh, statistical basis, most is not super constructive. No, probably not. And, you know, it's really hard to take criticism, even when it is elegantly applied. It's a two-way street. Well, the critiquer cultural, and then the like yeah. receiver of the critique, both people have to be able to engage in that exchange in a way you know, a lot of times it doesn't happen at the moment properly, but then over time people are like, oh my gosh, yeah, now that I think about it, that person was so right in what they were saying and I took it the wrong way or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. we can all relate to this kind of thing where somebody told us a thing and we took it the wrong way and then Mm -hmm. even years later we're like, oh man. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There's an art to taking and receiving criticism Mm -hmm. and we're all probably naturally bad at it and just always trying to get better. Well, in the intent, there is also intent behind criticism. I hear Mm -hmm. this from people who like own restaurants or service-based companies wouldn't know any of those. When you get criticism if somebody is like i ate at your restaurant and the steak was terrible and i'm never coming back the restaurant owner and i know this for a fact thinks to themselves well why would i bother asking you why you didn't like your steak yeah because you if seem you're like never coming back just, like, i've already yeah. lost your business i'm going to move on and focus on the people who are, that are coming more back. open-minded but if right like, if yeah. you're like wow i went to this restaurant and had a steak i was really surprised it was really terrible it made it's really making me think twice about returning. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, it's going to elicit a response of like, "Oh, I should probably engage with this person. Mm-hmm. I might be able to retain their business yeah, that kind of and like, start a dialogue." That kind of <laughs> like, customer care and exchange stuff just it cracks me up if I ever start looking at reviews, yeah. and things online because people that get so mad about it 
it's like they have no idea that what they're doing is undermining their enjoyment for the rest of their lives everywhere. Oh, like, yeah. When you're just that kind of person. Yep. Yeah. Like, you're just was, like, you're never going to have a good time. There was an interview know? with, um, <laughs> there was an interview with, um, you're Billy. missing out on so <laughs> much good stuff in the world when that's how you operate. Yeah. There was an interview with, um, Billy Corgan, <laughs> the lead singer, guitar player of Smashing Pumpkins. Mm-hmm. And it was a recent interview. So it was after their like comeback tour. And they had changed the music that they play and like had these new albums. Mm-hmm. And so they did this one concert where it was going to be like an unplugged concert. And it was just him and his bandmates. And it was like in the round. And there were a couple thousand people. And they did this concert. There was like this open forum where you could just like leave comments afterward because they had all this new music and they wanted to know mm-hmm. about it. And he said he got this one that was written and it was like tens of thousands of words and went on and on. And it was about how this guy and his wife went to his show and because they didn't play any of their old songs, their night was ruined. They (laughs) wanted their money back. And it like went on and on and on about how like they had been looking forward this years and what Smashing Pumpkins means to them and like how dare they. And it was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. Ah, oh, people but, like that. Yeah. Billy Corgan was in the interview fascinated by like at first he was like, yeah, go F yourself. Like these are my <laughs> songs. But then he started to realize he's like, maybe they're not completely. Maybe they do belong to these people too. And it changed the way, even though it was clearly not constructive criticism, he took the onus on himself. And because, like, that's not really well explained or valid criticism, but he found a way. I mean, that sounds like that guy was a little bit unhinged. Right. But he found a way to take it and change his own perspective about his own work. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be highly admirable. It was part of his larger story because, like, his whole thing as a creator was he controversially got ownership of all of their songs, regardless of whether or not he'd written them and he took ownership of them and felt like they were his and it's what broke the band up. And his whole story is about like him getting out of his own way and losing his ego. And it's an interesting relationship with criticism. He took the onus on himself to take the criticism and turn it into something. So did he like Even reach out to that douchebag and be like, hey, I'm going to give you a private concert for he, all these old nostalgic songs you're hung up on? He did not. But he did decide to go back on his previous statement that he would no longer play any of their old songs and realize that it's bigger than just him and what he wants to do and that okay. it means something to people. And so they did that. So Originally, it was going to be like, nope, we're tossing this away. We're not doing that anymore. And he changed his mind based on that guy's evil, stupid (laughs) (laughs) comment. (laughs) Those things like that are just so self-centered. It's like, I know that we all have very, very emotional ties to music. Yeah, well, it's the the Star Wars thing, too. You just have this guttural, Mm -hmm. you know, like music has that way. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy to assign so much emotion to it. But then it's like, you know, you could just listen to the recording of the music and play that back. It's not giving credit to the artists of allowing them to evolve. Oh, I agree. In their creative endeavors, you know, that they must be frozen in time because when you were 15, the song meant a lot to you. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree completely. Like, that guy is in the wrong. And actually, now I want to go back and listen to the interview again because this was the conversation they were having. The interviewer was -hmm. like, well, the heck with that guy. Like, that's a BS. Like, went on and on and on. And Billy Corgan oddly was defending Mm -hmm. that person. And the other person was like, no, like, that's not constructive. That's ridiculous. It was fascinating just about the relationship Mm -hmm. with criticism. And that's the thing with Star Wars and popular stuff. and Well, nostalgia in general is really keyed into a lot of that. Very powerful. Yeah, but that was the adjustment 
for sure, in the Wayback Machine, the original uh, premise of the show, mm-hmm. the biggest adjustment actually kind of still to this day is people's relationship with criticism in Seattle versus people's relationship with criticism on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. In the end, that yeah, is I the biggest so. difference, not just in a workplace environment, but like the building and changes that go on in the city. And like mm-hmm. that is the big, and not huge just how cultural difference. we take it, but how we give it. Both how we give it and how we take it. And that's actually something that I appreciate about Pacific Northwest and Seattle is that it's not a one-sided thing. It's not, oh, we have trouble taking criticism, but I can dish it out all the time. It's a very respectful, like, I won't volunteer tomato throwing (laughs) at your thing (laughs) unless you ask me. And even then, I will initially be very supportive. And then if you're comfortable, like there are many stages to giving (laughs) your stages of giving a real critique. There's so much fear wrapped up in the entire. Yeah, there's an etiquette to it. Right. Whereas, you know, growing up in the East, you're in the wolves all the time with anything, anything at all. And it's a question of just like, not how hard do you want to make yourself? It's not really that. It's just you learn at a much earlier age to sift out the noise and find the voices that matter. And that's a skill that develops in childhood, even, because you look and see your parents getting it at work or your older brothers and sisters at school and going to college. You just, it's part of the culture. Mm -hmm. And here you just don't see that as much. You're not exposed to as much criticism, period, unless you really have to go and seek it and seek it again and ask again and ask again, and then maybe you'll get I mean, yeah, in the public realm. I think you definitely get it in academics. Yeah. You can get criticism about somebody else. I mean, yeah, like, I mean. (laughs) Crit culture, though. It's funny. We talked about that in show number three, which was our first guest, which was Haley Buckley. We talked about the art community and crit culture. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. (laughs) I wouldn't go so far as to say now I want to go back and listen to that episode, even though Haley was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Because I think we were decidedly less wonderful. Haley is wonderful. (laughs) But I don't think we had ourselves figured out yet. (laughs) Oh, man. But this has been the most fun thing I have done since I moved here. And I'm really glad you decided to do it with me because initially you. (laughs) I was so not into it at the beginning. Yeah, that's the other side of the story. I am really glad that I did it, too. And I love that you love it. No, I, it took me a while to get into this because <laughs> I was like, what? You want me to talk to people? I'm amazed you agreed considering how much you didn't want to do it. Well, that's why I did it. Uh, it was scary and made you feel alive. No, not, it didn't make <laughs> like me feel alive. It made me feel terrified and dead. It was <laughs> No, it was more just like I know that it's a thing that I've. I don't know. It sounds so cliche to say like that because I hate that. I don't really do that in other places necessarily. I don't. Well, I don't know. But yeah, at the time I was like, this seems like a cool and exciting idea, but I'm afraid of it because I don't even like to record my own voicemail. Right. That was a hurdle for me too. I don't like to talk on the phone. I don't like to hear my voice. That was a hurdle for me too. The first year, year and a half, I did all the producing and editing on the show. We luckily have an awesome editor who does work for us now, but I had to listen to my voice over and over and over again for hours on end every show. And it was really painful at first. And I hated the way I sounded. I was hypercritical. I would go in and like micro edit things I said to sound better. See, that's a thing that you got to do that I didn't get to do. (laughs) That was a huge challenge for me because that was probably my biggest I did that for you too. (laughs) Well, but but, but you were making choices for me, right? No, that's true. I mean, that's true. And so the idea that I had to 
commit to being recorded mm-hmm. on something that was going to be released publicly yeah. that I did not have control over. It was the lack of control that was hardest for me because I don't get to listen to everything and edit everything I want to say and re-record anything I said that sounded dumb. That was my biggest fear. I just, I don't want to sound dumb. <laughs> it's just like, it's so Rachel, simple. It, would be it is Im- so simple. It would be impossible just for you to sound dumb. Just don't want to sound dumb. It would be impossible for you to sound dumb. You know, like dumb. that's the kernel of it all. Yeah. And the lack of control is really good for me. Hmm. So I recognize that. I was like, you know what? I'm hyper controlling of everything generally in my life. Mm-hmm. And to do this was <laughs> incredibly challenging to be like, all right. <laughs> oh, do, you, do you know when the time was when you started to... A, get comfortable with it to and relax. Then be like, oh, I, I'm, I'm enjoying this. No, I don't know. Hmm. I think it happened organically. <laughs> You're just like, I, I still ate it. Charles. Well, yeah. No, no, I really do Charles, it this now. is torture. Oh, yeah. Can I've I been, leave yet? <laughs> I have been patronizing you for 50 episodes no. and you're just making it harder. <laughs> no, I think it's one of those things that it, that is one of those gradual things where we got used to it. Yeah. But also we got better at what we were doing. At first, we had never done any of this before. Mm-hmm. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know how to edit anything. We were doing it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mostly you were doing it yourself. I was just showing up and talking. <laughs> hey, that's a lot considering how and scary it was. It just, there was a point in time where I think it's the inflection and the curve like you're talking about mm-hmm, earlier mm-hmm. that where things started to be that we got more confident mm-hmm. and we got more skilled at the post-production and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. it came together this, this, point in time where we were just able to be a little bit more natural Mm -hmm, because I think we were both very like stressed out trying to record at the very beginning whereas now we can just sit here and talk oh yeah no the the show has never been easier not to do Uh, it's okay the shows that are just you and me have never been easier um and the shows with guests have never been more fun and at the same time I think that's the thing I look forward to the most is learning how to get the most out of the guests that come mm-hmm. and make them comfortable and get it to feel like just a chat, yeah. which is more challenging than it seems when there's like this big microphone in your face. That's the thing. I'm looking yeah. down at the laptop and like there's People like a sheet in with a show notes on it. And, you know, talking to people, having a right. friendly conversation. You've got food and snacks and drinks. Mm-hmm. That's the challenge is you're trying to take a natural conversation like that and put it into an unnatural situation where you have mics and mm-hmm. a soundproof room. Yeah. Be like, all Which right. we're actually in now. We well, have a be studio. Be relaxed. When we started, we were doing it in like a conference room that was definitely not meant to have podcasts recorded in it. We no. did it in our boss's office, which was also not ideal. No. And then... Uh, yeah, now we're actually like in a recording studio. It's pretty great. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you one or two structured questions to make this seem somewhat to like wrap a show. It up. What is something for the future of the show that you think would be really cool, you'd be really excited about that we haven't done? It can be mm, anything. Complicated question. I don't know. I just want to have as much as I enjoy our shows when it's just us, Doug. <laughs> I want to have cool and interesting new people to talk to. Cool. Me too. Because even as when we were talking about our personal challenges of doing this, that's mm-hmm. one of the things too that was tricky for me. I'm an introvert. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about... Yeah, you don't even look at me during the show, which is yeah. really weird. Yeah. Rachel just like, she just looks at the corner. I wear sunglasses. The she, it's the only way, yeah, it's the only way she agreed <laughs> to do the show. It's really strange. 
Uh, no, this is unfair. Everybody's going to believe you. It's not it's true. The, pa- the power. I'm a nice person. <laughs> I'm personal. I make eye contact. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just no, kidding. but I mean, I'm not the person that would necessarily just talk to a stranger sitting next to me right. in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And that's come up on previous shows, too, mm-hmm. about how you make that seem more natural or not seem, you know, and how we're not that great about that maybe here in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the idea of especially because you, Charles, took, this has been your baby of a show, right? Like you've done all the work. I've just shown up here and talked, right? But for me- <laughs> That's work. I mean, well, but that less, is value. But less work, you know? And so, because you did that part too. You just did all these other things. <laughs> um, but for me, showing up and talking to somebody that I've never met in my life, didn't have time to do any research on ahead of time most of the time. Sorry, guests. <laughs> you know, like meeting a new person and then being like, hey, now we're going to talk for an hour. Mm-hmm. Is It's been a fun and interesting challenge. Mm-hmm. And so I've gotten to talk to a lot of people that I would have never, ever talked to before because they might have been sitting next to me for hours in a bar and I just would never <laughs> have even said hi, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. Well, that's been one of the coolest things has been meeting all the people we've met. And it extends into like the rest of the world. I met one of our previous guests, Kayla Wolf from Onda Origins. We met just like at a birthday party of a mutual friend and we just started chatting. And it's this great pretense to get to ask like way more questions about a thing. Yeah. Like that, that it's would like, be socially awkward to do if you just ran into them. Normally. Right. No, it, well, it is. It's like you you can ask one or two questions about a thing, a per, you know, yeah. a person does. But then, you know, having this thing that you do and be like, oh, I, you know, I happen to do this podcast and we talk about X. And that's why this is just really interesting to me to find to ask you a few more questions. It's so interesting. And people open up more. Even if they like don't even have no interest in doing the show. So you're, There's something you're enjoying about, the social lubricant of yeah, kind of talk about it. Yeah. No, but that, you know, you meet more people regardless on the show, off the show, the whole thing, uh, which is fascinating. Yeah. Whereas uh, I'm yeah. just like a shy and awkward person that's like, yep. now I'm forced to have a conversation and the, it's going to be recorded and sent to the world. <laughs> yeah. The performative aspect of it is something that is scary to me. The power of editing is a very safe safety blanket to hold on to. One of the things that I think would be cool to do with the show, and you know this, is to do like a live show Mm -hmm. when we can't just record everything out and do it in front of a crowd because that scares me. Yes, it sounds quite scary. And I also think that it would be exciting because it would force us to do more research than we've ever done. Yeah, it's the next. Set up it's a, the next. Thing. Yeah, set We're up a real debate and a real conversation and have a bunch of people and have people ask questions. And yeah. we don't get a lot of interaction from our listeners, which is okay. But if, hey, if you're still listening after an hour on this episode, <laughs> uh, hey, interact with interact us. With we want to hear from you. Darn it. Yeah. <laughs> Stop whatever it is you're doing. No, totally. Write because email. definitely that is the next step is yeah. to be able to have take down that those protective comfort blankets and mm-hmm. step into a more dynamic experience. Yes. Yes. Agreed. I accept. <laughs> right. <laughs> now we just have to find time to actually do that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which is next to impossible. We'll just talk about that after the show. Anything you want to ask me? Why, Charles? Yeah. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Why did you do this to me? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) No, 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 no. This has been great. Congratulations on 50. To the next 50. Not your 50 years of age, which you are not. (laughs) Which I am not. It sounds like that. It does sound like that. Congratulations on 50. You're like, wait a (laughs) minute. Just for the record, um, not that old. Not in diapers yet. (laughs) Not yet. But yes, uh, this has been great. Can't wait for the next 50. Yeah. Awesome. 
Thank you very much for listening. Check out Design Goggles Podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also, check out our blog on boardandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by Board and Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks. Bye.